0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. There's a modern trend, social media, it's popular today, focusing on the idea of what's called faith deconstruction. Faith deconstruction. And the whole idea is seeking to rethink religious beliefs that have been held for centuries, millennia. But essentially taking these religious beliefs that we have grown and heard and really, quote-unquote, deconstructing them. And really they're taking these fundamental beliefs and using it as a ploy to really dismantle faith. It's under the guise of the abuses that it's real and genuine within the church where people have taken the truth and have perverted it, and have prostituted this gospel, and have genuinely abused it. And so this idea of faith reconstruction or faith deconstruction is used because that's happened in the church. Let's really rethink what we believe. The problem with that is this faith deconstruction is not going after the genuine abuses of those who have proclaimed this truth. This faith deconstruction is seeking to deconstruct the truth And there has never been and there never will be a problem with the truth. But as we know, there's problems with many who proclaim this truth. But the problem is in this context is it's going after the truth. And there is no problem with this truth because it comes from a God who is true and who cannot lie and never will lie. And this whole idea is propagated as if this is like a new relevant issue within our age. Like we need to now wake up now. This is new. Let's be honest. It's not new. This is not new to us. You can even go back to this this French philosopher, this real idea of deconstructionism started with him, Jacques Derrida. He was a French philosopher early in the 1900s, the mid-1900s, and started this whole idea of just deconstructionism. And his whole idea was was to, to remove the significance of objective truth from our lives, that words have no meaning in themselves. These black and white words that carry objective truths, that's not where truth is found. But rather, truth is found in the reality that we interpret from these truths. So therefore, what you say is true about these words that people have said, it can have a different meaning than what was originally intended. This is not new. This is going back to the 1900s. And yet it's propagated as something new. But if that's not early enough, go back thousands of years before that, Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? Where he questioned the very objective words that were given to them, that they heard from the mouth of God, and now you have a serpent saying, is that really what it means? It's not new, but yet it's propagated today as if this is some new relevant thing that you got to get on the train with, otherwise you're going to get left. But yet, this is just another ploy from the pit of hell, and yet many are following it. And what makes it shocking is not that people are falling away from this faith that they once proclaimed, quote unquote, but I think some things that are shocking is that the people that we, some people that are falling away, we did not expect them to fall away. Oftentimes, what's surprising is that I know people are going to fall away from the faith. Scripture says that, but I didn't think it would be him. I think it'd be her, this pastor that I, I listen to, I love. Now he's walked away from this faith. That's oftentimes what's shocking to us is not that people are now walking away from Christ, but the very people you never you thought would never, ever walk away from Christ. And oftentimes people walking away from the faith, this is not always obvious. I don't think scripture is just referring to just the blatant statements and walks away from the faith, the, the, the obvious apostasy of people who walk away. But I think this happens oftentimes in very subtle ways where you have people you once fellowshipped with in your Bible study, prayed with. They said they prayed for you, and now they just disappeared. They, they slowly wandered away. They, they, the, the zeal that they once had for this Christ whom they proclaimed at one time, they kind of now just really fallen away. They don't really have the same affections that they said they used to have. They don't really pray as much. When you ask them, "How? what are you reading? I'm not really reading, but yeah, every now and then I listen to this sermon. Well, where are you going to church at now? I haven't seen you. I, I've just been really busy. I've been busy. And then five years later, they're still busy. Like, it's it's a slow progression, and it's very subtle and sneaky of just walking away from the church, the visible church. But in reality, we see, were they ever really a part of this church? That there are many who are still falling away, and it's not always the obvious apostasy that we see in Scripture in those passages. But it happens in very subtle ways when people walk away. So we shouldn't be shocked by this either, But rather, believer, I think, in the context of this, be reminded of why, believer, are you secure in your your faith? How do you know you won't walk away? How do you know that this love for Christ that you say that you have this morning will be there tomorrow? We need to be reminded of why we are secure in Christ. Why is the child of God secure and firm in their faith? And how do we reconcile this reality and culture with my profession of faith? We have to first understand that faith is not just a belief. And that's the problem. Is that people who came to faith said they came to faith because they believed something to be true. Now, you can't have faith without belief. But faith in scripture goes beyond just the knowledge of something and the belief that something is true. But it involves the trusting in this that which is true. That if this is true of who Christ is, I not only know what he did on the cross for sins, but I also now believe and trust that he did that for me. And that is the component of faith, that once that component of faith that God gives to the sinner is there, it abides and abounds. So we first have to understand that faith, true saving faith, is knowledge and belief, but it's the trusting in this. That I know it to be true, but now I am trusting that this is true for me. That what Christ did on the cross, if it is true what the word of God says about my sin, that I was under the wrath of God for disobeying him, for turning from him, the very word that I know that he implanted in my heart that I know is true, and yet I went astray and I sinned against him and rebelled and I am deserving of his wrath, But now his word says that his son came to the earth to die for sin. And he rose again, and he's coming back. And now I I not only know that's true, but I am trusting that that is true for me. So when I stand before God, why will he not say, depart from me, I never knew you? It's because my only hope was in Christ all along. It's in Christ. I'm trusting in Christ. That is the faith that is, is so essential to true Christianity. And you must have that faith if you're truly in Christ. But in the context now of our prayer in John chapter 17, Christ now is praying to the Father. And this is where theology is important because you see just clear implications of the Trinity displayed here where the Son is praying to the Father, and you see how all this is really going to be practically put in place in the church, really through the Spirit. But as he's standing here, he's praying to the Father, he's standing as our high priest, so to speak. He's our mediator. That's why many of your Bibles it says the high priestly prayer at the top of John chapter 17. And what is he doing now? He is making intercession. He is mediating. He is standing before the Father in place of the church on their behalf. He is standing there as the great high priest. And praise God that every single word that is uttered from his mouth is heard and welcomed. In the courtroom of God. Because as the high priest, he's not just a man. He is the God man. And in this high priest prayer, we're just focusing on verses 11 and 12 this morning. But he essentially is praying for their faith. He's praying for the faith of his disciples. Not that they would have faith because they already have it. But he's praying that their faith would keep them. He's praying that they would be secure in Christ. Because I know we're coming into verses 11 and 12 in the middle of this chapter. It's been a couple weeks since we looked at it. I just want to read verses 1 through 12 so we can get the proper context and we'll go from there. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So now in verse 11, in these, well, even the first 11 verses that we read here, this incredibly theologically rich prayer, we're finally arriving at the first petition that the Lord makes on behalf of his disciples. If you recall, verses 1 through 5 The Lord is praying on behalf of himself for his glory. And then in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, he's praying for all disciples, including us. And in verse 11 here, as he's praying in the middle here for his disciples, this is the first specific petition, the first request that Jesus makes for his disciples. And what is that petition that he asks You see there in verse 11, right there in the middle, he says, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. This is the very first thing he prays on behalf of them. If you remember in verse 6, he said that he manifested his name, the Father's name to them. But now he's asking that they be kept in his name. So what is he really asking? What is he asking? This idea of being kept in the name, name, it stands for the power of God. It, it means the power of God that is manifested in this person, that the name represents all that he is. So Matt, he, when he prayed in verse 6, or he said, I, I manifested your name, he, he revealed all who God is to these men, that they realized who God truly was. They may not have understood everything about God because he is infinite, will never Fully know who God is. In eternity, it will be an eternity of understanding more and more of who this great God is. But he says, I manifested who he is truly so they can know him. And so now he's saying, keep them in this. So to keep them in the name means essentially now, Father, keep them in you. Keep them in everything that you are. Keep them safe in your name. The Net Bible translates it this way, keep them safe in your name. New Living Translation, it's not a word-for-word translation, but sometimes it's helpful because it brings out what the author was intending by kind of paraphrasing it. And in this, this particular context, I think it's appropriate, it says in New Living Translation that protect them by the power of your name. I think that brings out what he's praying is, Father, now protect them how? Protect them by the power of your name, by the power of who you are. Keep them there in who you are. Remember how he started in verse 11, before he even makes that petition. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. Now, if you hear that, where is Jesus standing when he prays that? I am no longer in the world, and yet they they themselves in the world. We can say, pause, well, Lord, you're standing on earth. (laughs) The cross has not happened yet, but what is in Jesus' mind? We can say it confidently here, that in Jesus' mind, the cross was right before him, and he was certain of where he was going. It is no doubt of where he was headed. It was as if he was saying, I came here to die, and the time has come now, and he is certain now, without any vacillating, but with complete confidence, what I came to do, I will do it. So he can stand there as a great high priest, Because God, very God, in flesh, is saying here, I've now come to do what I came to do. And so, in a sense, I'm no longer in the world because it's certain it's going to happen, and I'm going to be gone, and I'm coming back. But he can say that confidently because he realizes what lies ahead, the cross. And with the cross, the resurrection and the ascension. And so he realizes it is soon before him. But he says there in that context, that's true. He says, keep them now in your name. Preserve them. This is why Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will do what? Finish it. And he says before that, he is Confident of this very thing, that God who began a good work in you is going to finish it. That the believer in Christ can be confident that if God began this work in me at salvation, he will do what? Finish it. And so Jesus here is, is praying what Paul can say confidently that he is going to finish it because Christ said, Keep them in your name, keep them in God. And you notice what he called the Father in this prayer? You notice how he referred to the Father? Look what he says. He says, Holy Father. Holy Father. This this is the only title that is used in Scripture here. Holy Father, keep them in your name. It emphasizes his separateness from all else. Where the Lord says, holy. And if the Father is holy... We know Christ is holy. He has given the name to the Son, meaning he is—he's given his, he's, he, the, meaning the name given to him, Christ, to proclaim on earth that he shares that separateness. Holy Father, you are separate. I am holy. And now he says, now, keep them in your name. As if he's saying, keep them wholly apart for you in your name. It's as if he was asking, Father, keep them apart in you. And pretty much every time that John uses this word, keep, in his gospel, and even in the first epistle of John, every time he uses this word, keep, it's used in the context of obedience. It's used in the context of guarding, of not just obeying, but but guarding and treasuring. For example, in John 8, 851, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That this idea of guarding my word. In, his, in your heart. In John 14 verse 15, he says, if anyone loves me, what will that person do? He will keep my commandments. He's not just talking about this once obedience, but he's talking about the nature of those who love Christ, those who will never see death, are those who guard Christ's words. And why do they guard his words? Because they love him. Because they've come to know him in the saving of their sins. And he says, the one who has a pattern, an ongoing pattern of guarding my word, he says, that person will not see death. That person loves me. So we cannot separate love from obedience. But in this context here, Jesus is using that same word, but he says now, Father, I pray that you would keep them in your name. Almost in the sense where he is comparing and putting on the same level here this idea of obedience and this loving obedience and the guarding of God's word. But he says, now, Father, keep them in your name so that that keeping you cannot separate from the love and adoration and worship to the one that they're proclaiming. And he's praying that you would do that. He's not saying, I'm praying that they would be kept in you, although that's by implication true. But he's saying, Father, you keep them. You guard them by your hand, by your power. You keep them and sustain them. And can I get an amen on that? That he holds us. That he says, preserve them, protect them. Like, praise God that this high priest is standing before God, and every prayer is heard with a yes and amen. And he says, Father, keep these little weak ones. Keep them. And if God keeps you, you will be kept. And so he prays, the first petition here, the first thing that he prays for his disciples, the very first thing is keep them, Father. Knowing what lies ahead of his disciples, how else could they endure? How else could these men endure what lies ahead of them unless they were kept by the power of God? How else can you persevere in your faith? In the context of all your trials, all your difficulties, every burden upon burden that comes upon you, how else can you enter the kingdom of heaven if God did not keep you from start to finish? And he praised this. And so how else could they endure? Because they did. How else can they endure so that not only they endure themselves, but they endure in such a way that God sovereignly uses their work to lay the foundation of the church— It's because he prayed for their perseverance, which was according to the will of God. He is praying according to the will of God, and of course, God would answer with a yes. And by the way, in this section that we read, these two verses, and even the next section where he's still praying for his disciples, the main petitions are around the idea of keeping them and sanctifying them the main petitions he's praying for his disciples is essentially for them to be kept and to be kept holy to be to be set apart for god's purposes that the on the lord's mind is not specifically about their actions it's not about all these details which are still important but he goes first and foremost to their preservation that they would be kept and sanctified, set apart, and holy, just like the holy God that called them. This is what he focuses on. This is God's concern for his church, to remain in Christ. And this is what he prays. And there is so much more implications in this verse here. And there's more that even unpacks that he impacts in the following verses but for now, here's what we must understand. In these two verses, it guarantees the preserving power of God in those who believes. That he is guaranteeing the preserving power of God in those who believe. That because he prayed, keep them in your name, they will be kept in his name. That his children will be kept it guarantees the preserving power of God in those who believe. Because that's true, we're going to spend the rest of the time just going over two blessed implications of our preservation. Two blessed implications of our preservation. And I call them blessed. Blessed implications. Why? Why? Because in the context here, when Jesus is praying for his disciples and even speaking to his disciples before he leaves, he repeats time and time again, I say these things so that their joy may be made full. Because think about it, Christ could, he could not have, even if he didn't pray this on earth before his disciples, if he prayed this in private, right, it still would have been done. But his disciples hear this, and so now we hear this, Why? What should it stir in us? What should this stir in us that God is preserving his people? If it does not stir in you a confidence and a joy and a desire to follow this Christ, may I prod you this morning. If you are not moved by God's providence in keeping you, do you know the keeping power of this son? Because when Christ people hear this, it gives you confidence to press on because he has me in his hands. So that's what it should stir in us. He says in the next verse, I pray that their joy may be made full. It should inform your joy as you hear what Christ prayed for you by implication. That this is what he did. And because that's true, we need to hold what are these blessed implications of God's keeping power for his children? The first implication is that we are preserved for unity, we are preserved. For unity. We see this pretty plainly. It's in the text, verse 11. After he says he's no longer in the world, he says, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, the name he's given to the, the son to proclaim. Why? What's the purpose of this keeping power? That they may be one. That they may be one. The purpose, one of the purposes in God preserving his children is so that they would be unified, that they would be one. The purpose is the unity. He is not praying that they would act like they're one, but he is saying that they would be one. He is referring to an essential unity there, an essential unity It's not done by legislation, by an act. He's saying, no, I'm praying that they would be preserved so that they would be one. And if he prays for this, will it be done? Yes. And they're not just to be kept, although it's true, but he says kept in one name so that they may be one. Have you ever noticed that a 100 pianos tuned to one tuning fork? are automatically tuned to each other. And why is that? It's not because they're working hard to stay tuned to one another, but how is it that a 100 pianos can be tuned automatically to each other as one? It's because they have a common fork, the common tuning fork that to they're tuned to. It is one outside of themselves that each one of them are tuned to, and therefore, automatically, they are one. In a very simple way, the Lord is saying here, I pray they be kept in one name and who you are, because if they're in you, they are one together. So, why is it that 200 worshipers can come together from every different background, every ethnicity, and language and still be one? It's because we have one commonality Christ. Christ. That we are brought together by one Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.12 says that for even as the body is one, yet it has many members. And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. You get a theme here? One, that now one body baptized by one spirit into one savior. And for his disciples, as they go out into the world, as they're hearing this, they're going to face persecution, they're going to face hardship, face rejection. But guess what? They're going to remain in one truth. If church history is right, as Peter heads, not only just to die and to be crucified like his Lord, but to be crucified upside down, how is it that he's going to preserve and be preserved and remain the faith? It's because his Savior prayed for him. How is it even after denying his Savior three times, will he be restored? Because Christ prayed for him that his faith may not fail. And Christ, when he prayed for Peter, he prayed universally for the whole church of God, that you would be kept by the power of God. And because you're kept by the power of God, as Jesus himself says, no one can take you out of his hand. You can't be removed. And so they will remain the truth, and they will proclaim the truth in a hostile world. And even as they were kept, what happened as they were kept? What happened? The book of Acts displays it clearly. Of how when they were proclaiming this one name, even to the Jews and Gentiles, that God sent his son to save sinners, what happened? More were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the same kingdom of light. And as they were transferred one by one, they were transferred into one body. And so therefore they were now one. And as he praises for his disciples, they proclaim this one message and bringing salvation to many who are now entered into this kingdom of his marvelous light. And then who does he compare this unity to? He says, I I pray that you would keep them so that they may be one. But then he says the very end of verse 11, even as we are. Even as we are. I pray that they would be one just like us. He's praying to the Father. And he's saying their, their unity would be patterned after our unity. That should blow our mind. Like he he is comparing it to the unity there within the Godhead that they all, all y'all, would be one just like we are? There is an essential unity there, a mysterious unity that he is praying for and that it is done He later says how we have unity with the Godhead in verses 21 and 22, but here he's patterning our unity after the Godhead. That just as we are one, may they be one. He's saying how the unity is compared to the unity there. And in that sense, we're one. This is the reason why we can call each other brother and sister, is it not? Whether we really are brother and sister, why? Because we have one father. We have one father. So we are one, one family. In that sense, we truly are one. I mean, just if you think of a biological family, I'm not Italian, but from what I've seen of Italians, family is important. Family is really important. And really, just any culture you get into, how much is family? Remember one time when me and my best friend, we we grew up on, on the street and we were just Walk around the street and run amuck at times, and just the Lord was just working on this hardened heart. I tell you. And one time, me and my friend, we somehow started a fight with his cousin. And his cousin and then we just ended up fighting. I don't even remember all the details, but we just ended up fighting. And then my friend's sister came out, and his name was, uh, I didn't say his name, but um, <laughs> his sister came out, and he, she was like, "Hey." I, you guys are going to fight your cousin? And I just remember her specifically stating, that is your blood. He is your blood. He is your blood. And I just remember her saying that time and time again. I don't think it stuck with him, but like what she was saying. And I don't even think it stuck with me at that time. But I'm looking back on the incident, and I was thinking, wait a minute. She was siding with him than me then. Because if they're blood, they should go against me. (laughs) I don't realize what she was maybe implying. I don't know if she was directly implying that. But her point to my friend was, this is your blood, your cousin you're fighting against. Like, what's wrong with you? Now, if we, in our fleshly minds, understand the significance of genetics, that this is family, that we are one, because we're family by blood, that we should be one and have each other's back, how much more greater should our understanding be of the spiritual family of God? Because blood will eventually fade away and die. The blood will remain in the grave. But the unity that you have with one another in Christ Will extend into eternity. That it goes beyond genetics. That your unity with one another goes beyond physical family. It goes beyond the family tree, beyond the bloodline. And he's saying, You are one with one another. And as a family, a spiritual family, we can fight, we'll have sin against each other. But guess what? At the end of the day, we're going to say, No, no, we're family. We're family. And the blood of Christ covers it all. Just like he covered my sin. It can cover your sin. We're family. And there's nothing that tears that apart. And this is why when a sinner truly comes to Christ, when he truly comes to Christ, that there is nothing more important to this sinner that is now saved by the blood of Christ than the family of Christ. Did You notice, depending on your testimony and when you came to Christ, Beforehand, the church and Christians, like, there's a bunch of weird people here. What are they doing? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, they, they talk weird. Yes, I know, and they, 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 they act all uppity. it didn't make sense to you. It did not make sense to you what happened Sunday morning and throughout the week. Yeah, going to Bible study, why? Oh, to study that stale old book? Like, it did not make sense. But when Christ opened your eyes... And you realized what he did for you on the cross. And then you came to church, and you're like, I can't get enough of this. I need more truth. I need more truth. I need not only the truth, but I need the body of Christ. I need my true brothers and sisters. I need them. And now the church is a place now where I enjoy, because it's not about the building, but the people in the building, and I need this church. And that's what it does. Our unity here is more important than anything else that we would seek to find commonality in. Because our unity is based upon a person, Christ. We're not unified because we have the same diet or allergies. We're not unified because we have the same perspectives on schooling. We're not unified because we have the same views of Israel and the church. We're not unified because we have the same approaches on every secondary or tertiary theological issue. But we are one in the name. In the name. In Christ. That's why Paul says, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, we're all equal there and we're one before the cross. And so that means by implication, if this is true, where your unity is, it's essential if that is true, your faith is personal, but your faith is not private. Your faith in Christ should be personal, but it is not private. I hear sometimes people say, "No, my faith is my faith," as if get out of my business, right? Don't ask me about who would I believe. Where I go, They're like get out of my... No, 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 no. Your faith now is personal, but it's not private. It's part of, you're a a part of a body. You're not your own. It's almost as if someone tries to chop off their finger and hope that it survives well. Like, what's going to happen? It's not going to be healthy. You're part of now a body, a corporate body. You are not alone. And so, of course, this unity then plays out in having the same purpose and the same will. And the apostles here, as Jesus is praying for them, just like all believers, we're one. We are one. Is this how you view yourself in the context of your faith? Do you realize that when Christ called you to himself, he called you to the body of Christ? That he now unified yourself yourself with him, but also now you're unified with one another. That you are not your own. And because of this essential unity that we have with one another, there should be a functional unity. We should have a a same will, the same common love for one another, a, a same love for Christ, a devotion to him, an obedience to his word. I mean, now this is a family here that I have that I don't have with my biological family unless they're in Christ. That this unity here supersedes that in a real way. Is that how you view the body of Christ? If your faith is a private faith with the excuse of living your life how you want to live, may I warn you that's not the faith in the Bible. But that's not how faith is described. The second implication of our, of our preservation not only are we preserved for unity, but we are preserved with perfection. Preserved with perfection. Because having prayed to the Father to protect the disciples, Jesus declared that he had protected them. Look what he says in verse 12 right after that. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished. He says here, you notice how he phrases there, when I was with them, I, I was keeping them. This tense here implying that this was ongoing in the past. While I was with them, I was continuously keeping them. He's praying to the Father, keep them, and now he's looking back, I did keep them. Now, keep them going forward, and when I was with them, I was keeping them. That I was with them. And then he says right after that, I was keeping them, and he says, and I guarded them. Two words there, keeping, garden, gardened, guarding, excuse me. Keeping and guarding, like two similar words here, but the idea of keeping has the sense of protection by preservation, but now guarding here is more focused on a defense against external attacks. So idea of keeping them, I was preserving them, and he even says, and I guarded them, I defended them. So not only did I preserve them, but I even guarded them against attacks. And you notice the repetition here with Christ keeping them, guarding them, and then he says not even having one of them perish. In a sense here, the Lord is saying before the Father, I have Without any doubt, I have kept them completely here on earth. And if Christ did that, if he kept them completely, if he kept them perfectly, is there any doubt that he will not keep you as well? Because he's giving himself as an evidence. Did I not keep them? Did I not guard them? And if that is true, will he not keep you? His track record. Is 100, 100 percent, one for one. Every single one he keeps and every single one he guards. They were protected from danger seen and unseen. He is removing any doubt that his work was done with excellence and bringing it to full execution. I even think how many times were they protected and guarded that they even have any idea that they were being protected and guarded? They're probably hearing this and they're like, what? <laughs> but also even encouraged because they realize, whoa, look what he's praying for us. Look at the love that he has for us. As he's praying secretly before the Father, he has us on his mind. That yes, he's firmo- first and foremost about his glory, but he's also about our protection, our well-being. And how did he keep them? I think one way arguably is through Truth even as the following verses we'll see, that he kept them by truth. You'll see this even in the next section, but he, he warned them how many times against the leaven of the Pharisees? How many times in the Gospels did Christ take his disciples aside and, and speak to them and disciple them further on these truths he was giving them? Stay away from these false teachers because these false teachers can lead people to hell and they will lead many to hell, but he says, stay away from them. How many times did he guard them and protect them with truth? How many times did he even stand in their defense? Hey, your disciples there are picking wheat on the Sabbath. And no, no, he stepped in and defended them and guarded them. He kept them in his care. That it was in his power he did this. And it was clearly displayed. And so he's giving now his testimony. Were they not preserved with perfection? I kept them. I guarded them. And if he did that... Will not God keep us even to this day? And even though, as verse 11 says, he is going to the Father, how was the believer today kept in the power of God? You remember Ephesians 1, verse 13? What does it promise there in the great context of our salvation? That not only are we blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, not only has he given us to us an inheritance, not only has he given us forgiveness of sins, redemption, by his own blood, not only were you predestined before the foundation of the earth, but he says there he sealed you. He, he, he put a pledge there. He marked you with what? His spirit. And he says that spirit there is the down payment of your salvation. That the spirit abides and dwells and is sealed in the believer. And so now, believer, you are kept, though Christ is at the right hand of the Father waiting to come back, you are kept by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That He has sealed you, he's marked you, and he indwells you, and he will never leave you. And that's why Jesus says in John 16, verse 7, it is for your advantage that I go away. Because when he goes away, he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come. Christ is a keeper. He will keep perfectly. And he will continue to keep them. And this is why even believer, though I know this to be true, do I not struggle with my flesh? Even though he says those who keep my word will never die, but yet I am internally struggling because I don't always keep his word. I'm struggling because I know this to be true, and yet, Lord, you know my weakness. You know how I am so prone to wander. You know I know you to be God, but I don't live like it all the time. But does it grieve you? And what is the only hope within that turmoil? The only hope is Christ and Christ alone. That in the believer, the only hope in your turmoil, in your struggle, is the fact that Christ lives he lives. If he lives, he lives to make intercession for you. And yes, your sin bothers you. And yes, you really realize how weary you are. But your only hope at the end of the day is that Christ lives. That there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. That there is that great high priest who is interceding for me. And my only hope is the shed blood of this Savior. It's Christ who lives. He keeps you. He keeps you by drawing you by the power of your spirit to see the perfection of the Son, to see the perfection of the Savior. And if you don't see his perfection, if you have not seen how good Christ is, if you have not tasted of his goodness, if it does not bring you to tears about what your sin is like before a holy God, if you are not grateful for the shed blood of Christ, do you know this Christ? Because this morning, you can know him truly. He is good. He lives. And you must see your sin, but you must also see the perfect Savior. Christ lives. And if he lives, he is the returning Christ. And he will bring to pass every single word. Now the question may remain, did God fail? Because look what he says at the end of verse 12. Though he preserved and kept them, but look what he says. Not one of them perish except who? The son of perdition. The Twelve disciples, not all of them were preserved. Not all of them were kept, he says, except one, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, speaking as obviously of Judas, that Judas was not kept. Did God fail? Judas did not persevere because he was never in. He was never in. It wasn't like Jesus did his best. It's like, well, you know, like 99%, that's pretty good. Still an A plus, right? Or it's still A, right? He didn't trick Jesus. The Lord knew all along. John chapter 6, verse 70 says, He's speaking to his disciples, Did I myself not choose you? Speaking of the disciples, and yet one of you is a devil? John chapter 13, it says, one of you will betray me. He says to Judas, do what you do quickly. He knew all along, and he knew this because all the while, as the end of verse 12, it was so that the scripture would be fulfilled, that even in this wicked deceit that Judas would do in betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, it was all according to the plan of God. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 14 predicted that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 41, verse 9 predicted that Jesus, his betrayer, would share his bread. He would have fellowship with him, and he would turn against him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 20, in Peter's sermon, he even refers to Judas's betrayal. But he says, and he even quotes Psalm 69, 25. He quotes Psalm 109, and he says, this was all according to the scriptures. It was according to the plan of God. It wasn't that Judas was saved, and then he lost his salvation. Judas was never saved. And this language here, the son of perdition, implies here it wasn't if he was destined to this apart from his own doing. No, he gave himself to destruction. He was a son of destruction. He willingly gave himself in there because that's what he was in. He loved his sin. He loved it. That's why he would steal from the treasury. He stealed from the money. All the while, Jesus knew he was a devil. This was not a surprise. So, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he is praying for those whom he has called to himself and those he preserved. But it was always according to scripture that one would betray him, and yet he would still be held accountable for his own sin. Because Judas loved his sin rather than the creator. So, why is it that the church will persevere? Why is it, believer? that you will walk through heaven's eternal gates and you will behold glories and wonders that you are not worthy of. But you will see them and you will delight in them. And why is it that you will persevere? Because Christ prayed for you according to the will of God that you would be called and you would be justified that you would be sanctified that you would be glorified. What he began in you, he will complete it. Why don't some persevere? Why do some who were genuinely in this church sitting next to me, why do they walk away? It's because the faith that they had may have been just intellect, may have just been a belief, but they never trusted in this faith. And that was evidenced in their own life. It was evidenced by a continuing turning to sin. It was evidenced by just complacency, no really genuine love for Christ, no genuine love for his word, and they loved themselves. And they were deceived in thinking that, yes, I have faith, because I believe what you believe, but they did not trust in what you trusted in. This is the sad reality of many who will stand before this Lord and present their faith only to find that this faith that they once held on to was never a saving faith. And that is a sad reality of many on that day. Because true saving faith produces perseverance. True saving faith produces perseverance. So how is it that some actually fall away? The reason why they fell away is because the faith they originally professed was never possessed. They could articulate it, but it never lived. Within them, they never knew Christ at all. But hear this, believer: we we, we want to hear the main directive for us, and hear what Christ prayed for you—that he you would be kept by the power of God. And believer, be honest with yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Are there not times when life is hard, struggles are hard, temptations are hard, and you may come to it like, "I just want to give it all away"? I just want to walk away from this. I'm done. I've hit my last step. I'm done. You may have those thoughts secretly, but you know what keeps you where you're at? You look at the door and you see Christ standing there, and you think, I can never walk past him. I want to walk away right now, but Christ is standing at the door. I cannot walk past him. You know why that is? Because the spirit of God that regenerated you is directing your soul and what saved you. And that's what keeps you. And when God saves, he sanctifies. He keeps you. He preserves you by his power. And yet there's another reality. That there may be some who maybe even in this room are on the verge of walking away from their faith that they proclaim. You say the right things, but secretly you know you're just about one step away, and I'm just done. Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe you're just tired of it. You don't believe it. And maybe there's a draw of the world in you that you just want to go after. And it may be for some who feel like that. They feel that way. I'm ready to walk away. And can I just lovingly say it may be it's because you truly have not tasted how good God is. It may be the Spirit has not opened your eyes. And it may be you know these things that we have talked about for the last 50 minutes, but they've never resided on your heart. And in humility of heart, I beseech you to ask the Lord Jesus Christ, humble me and help me to hear in a saving way this message of the gospel. That Christ came to save sinners and I am the worst. Help me, Lord Jesus, to see my sin because I don't think I see it in the way I do. I don't think I have the love for Christ that I hear about. I know these things, but it's not. Not there, help me, Lord Jesus, in humility to see what true saving faith is. I am ready to walk out, and I don't know if I've ever known you, but today, this morning, I want to know you. Come before this God, and you can know Him right now. If that's you ready to walk away. You may not be like Judas, who is as obvious as it is. You may just kind of stumble and walk away. No one will notice, but God sees all things. He already knows what's in your heart. And would you go to him in humility right now and say, Lord Jesus, help me to see your glory? Because this is only something that God can do. If he, God alone saves, God alone sanctifies. God alone glorifies. Keep your eyes on Christ In Christ alone. At the end of the day, beloved, is not the direction in scripture time and time again in the context of falling away for us believers to turn and to look at Christ. That's why Hebrews 12 says, lay aside every weight, every burden, and fix your eyes on the one who authored your faith and the one who perfected your faith. Fix your eyes on him. And that's why in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, it says that we are protected by God for this faith. That you've been kept by God, by his power. And this is the faith we cling to. And there's no other hope but looking at Christ who stands at the door. Come to this Christ. He saved you and he will keep you. Father, we do thank you for this perfecting work of your son. And we cling to Christ, our only hope our only Savior. And Lord, would you refine us even more to love this Christ more truly. In his name we pray, amen.